God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about Genesis 1, the creation narrative. Genesis 1. When people think about Genesis, what do they think? They think this is the chapter in the Bible that describes God's first, God's primary creation of all the universe, all that there is, all space, time, and matter. And Genesis 1 is their go-to proof text. But we're going to be talking about what this narrative actually says, what kind of events that we could understand from the narrative, what's going on in the narrative. And we'll see if, in fact, the modern notions of Genesis 1, if those are supported by the Genesis 1 text. The most natural place to start a talk about Genesis is probably Genesis 1.1. And let me read that for you now. When God began to create heaven and earth. You guys notice that there? The text says, when God began to create heaven and earth. That's a little different than what we're used to hearing. The earth being unformed and void, with darkness over the surface of the deep, and a wind from God sweeping over the water. So what I just read to you, it's not ESV, it's not the New King James. What I read to you was the JPS a Jewish publication society version of the Bible, and they read Genesis 1-1 as a clause. This clause gives the title, this clause gives an overview of what's happening in the chapter. And if we notice very carefully, it is describing initial conditions before God started creating. So before God even does or says anything, it says, The earth was unformed and void, with darkness over the surface of the deep, and a wind from God sweeping over the water. So before any events happen in Genesis 1, we find the earth being unformed and void, and we find water, and God is hovering over the water. Listeners who are more of the fundamentalist type might try to object right away, saying, oh, that's not true at all. What are, what are you trying to claim? That God didn't create the universe from nothing, no creation, ex nihilo. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what this text is about. Not even a week ago, we posted a link on God is Open to a free Dallas Theological Seminary course on Genesis. On Genesis. And this is hosted by a Dr. James Allman. Dallas Theological Seminary is a fundamentalist, uh, right-wing, evangelical. That's, that's what they teach. They teach fundamentalism. And even their scholars agree with what I'm talking about right here. Let's listen to Dr. James Allman. I mentioned to you when we talked about Leviticus 1.1, starting with a Vav consecutive, that is a, a, a means of saying this event is, is a, a, an outgrowth of that event in either logical or chronological ways. Remember that? I don't have that in verse 2. I have what's called a disjunctive clause in verse 2, and that means that the uh, verse 2 is not an outgrowth of verse 1, either chronologically or logically. So typically what I have, and this is fairly standard Hebrew style, you start by giving a summary of an event, then the conditions uh, at the beginning of the story, and then you tell the story. So I, I take verse 1 as a summary or a title. Yeah. Practically speaking, Genesis 1-1 is not evidence, it's not your proof text for creation ex nihilo from nothing. God speaking the universe into existence. Sure, there's other verses in the Bible in which you can come to that conclusion, 
but Genesis 1-1 is not going to be that verse. And we have to be very careful not to pull a James White. And what I mean by that is James White always argues that his proof text means what he wants it to mean, because if it doesn't, then he's going to lose an argument for some other position. It's a mental logic, but you hear it often when he's debating people. Like he was debating N.T. Wright, and N.T. Wright just shut him down on it. It's pretty funny. But what I'm saying about this text is standardly accepted in scholarly circles. I read to you the Jewish Publication Society version. And now I'm going to play a clip from Dr. Michael Heiser. We got two possible translations. If we opt for the when translation, now look, I've changed the colors. Now we have dependent clauses. We don't have a series of independent ideas. We have two full verses of clauses that are leading up to something. And that something is verse 3, and that is the main idea. That's the independent thought. So here, just think about it. Read, you know, read along with me or in your mind, and just think about how it sounds. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, now the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. It really has a different feel. It, it, it sounds like everything in verses 1 and 2 are just prep. They're, they're not really happening. They're, they're the writer describing what conditions, now catch this, the writer is describing conditions that already exist before God actually creates anything, before God actually speaks anything into existence. In other words, you have a situation where verses 1 and 2 lead to verse 3, and they set it up. The first creative act, the first thing God does in Genesis 1, 1 through 3, in this view, is not verse 1. It's verse 3. Heiser, in this same lecture makes a pretty good case why the Hebrew behind Genesis 1-1 more adequately can be translated when God began creating the heavens and the earth rather than what we see in the ESV or the New King James. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just the Hebrew manuscripts, the ones that come down to us with vowels, support the Jewish Publication Society version over what we're going to be seeing in evangelically translated texts. This might be a revolutionary idea to a lot of Christians, that the first creative act of God in Genesis 1 is Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. The earth already existed, it was without form and void, and there was already existing water. You don't get from the Genesis text God creating water out of nothing or God creating the earth by his voice. That, that's how he does his creative acts throughout Genesis and we'll get to that. We'll talk about how he creates and what's the result of his creation. So it's particularly humorous when people say Genesis 1-1 is God creating time. God entering the spatial temporal realm. That's not what Genesis 1 is about. 
And that's not what the ancient Jewish reader would think when they read this. That's a modern notion that people kind of want to impose on the text when they say, oh, Genesis proves that God created time. Mm, that's not what's going on in this text. And it doesn't mean in the beginning of time, before time began. None of those concepts. It's just when God started creating, this is what happened. Another key detail that points to this understanding of Genesis 1 and 2 is that when God creates throughout Genesis 1, there's a very specific pattern. And we see it forming in Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. You notice that God talks, God uh, says that something should be created, and then that thing gets created. And then usually in the text, there's an evaluation afterwards. God speaks, something's created, and then God evaluates that creation. That's the pattern. If Genesis 1-1 is God creating, it's going to be violating this pattern that we see of God's creative acts throughout the rest of this chapter, where God's speaking things into existence and then evaluating them afterwards. Genesis 1-4 begins, And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So God creates light, and some people object, you know, what this narrative doesn't make sense, because God creates the sun on a different day. So what are we talking about day and night and light and dark, and the sun doesn't even exist? Well, yeah, well, people could create beams of lights with, like, flashlights. It's, it's not beyond the scope of imagination that God can create a beam of light, and that would cause a day and night cycle. And then later, God would be creating the sun to sustain continuous light. You know, that, that's probably what the author in this text had in mind. This is not some super sketchy text that we have to use very complicated means to explain away. When it comes to biblical criticism, that's one of the more terrible arguments against the Bible that I've heard. The next thing God does is he divides the water. And God said, let there be expanse in the midst of the water, and let us separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. We need to notice the time frames that are going on here. Time is passing as these creative acts are happening and it lists it as a day. And there's some Christians who claim these days are millions of years. That's not what is being communicated in this text for the reader. It's not saying after a million years, the waters were separated from the waters. And there's a million years of light, a million of dark. And then after a million years, vegetation's created. And then after another million years, that's uh, not what the ancient reader is going to read into this text. They're not even going to assume it into the text. It wasn't part of their mindset. When people try to make Genesis 1 jive with whatever uh, scientific reasoning that they want to bring to the text, you can't just force that onto ancient Jewish concepts. They're incompatible. If someone wants to maintain an evolutionary worldview, an evolutionary mindset, while affirming Genesis 1, they need to adopt more of a position that, like, Michael Heisner takes, where Genesis 1 is a polemic against false gods, and it's not trying to communicate actual 
historical truths. That's that's the only way you're going to jive Genesis 1 with whatever scientific theory you want to bring to the text. Genesis 1.11 And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing the fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. It's very interesting, this, and God saw that it was good, this is a reoccurring motif in this chapter. God is evaluating his creation. God wants to create something, he does create it, and then he looks to see how it turned out, how his creation turned out. He's like an artist admiring his own work. Like if I make a drawing, uh, I, I think about what I'm going to draw, I draw it, then I look at it and evaluate it. Oh, is this good or bad? Oh, this is pretty good here. And in this text, God evaluates what he's created, and it turns out to be good. Note the basic open theism in these texts. God doesn't foresee from eternity the outcome of all his creative acts. The text doesn't attribute to God inherent knowledge. Instead, it attributes to God knowledge that he gets from evaluation, from seeing, from experience. It's not this idea of Greek omniscience where all thoughts are in God's head from all time eternal the author of Genesis 1 is very unfamiliar with themes of omniscience or timelessness or eternity or immutability or impassibility. It's just not written by someone with that mindset, with those theological presuppositions, who want to communicate anything like that about God. That's not the God of this text. After this, there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. This is probably a direct attack on those cultures who worship the sun, the moon, the stars. In Christian theology and Jewish theology, these are not gods to be worshipped. These are just lights. These are material objects created by God to serve a function. They're functional elements of the universe. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Speaking creating evaluation speaking creating evaluation it keeps repeating itself it's an important theme to the text this is how god creates things he speaks through words his words have power his words cause some sort of creative action and then he evaluates to see how he created in what manner it turned out it's always good god is creating a good earth there's no signs of wickedness there's no signs of disease or decay or death as in so many pagan religions that was their theology that this world was founded in in gods that were fighting each other and man that were was built for death and suffering and to service the gods that's not 
present in the Genesis text. Instead, everything is good. God is creating a good world without any presence of evil. The fifth day, God creates animals of the sea and birds in the earth. The sixth day, God creates all animals. Again, you get the God saying, let there be that thing happening and then an evaluation. Let's now figure out what's going on in verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. God is going to be creating some sort of being with some sort of power. And this being is said to be in our image. This is Elohim speaking. This is God. Elohim is used for God throughout Genesis 1. Some people claim of this text that God is talking in the Trinity to other members of the Trinity. And I don't think that explanation has very much explanatory power. Where does God make angels in Genesis 1? Where does that happen? It doesn't happen. The divine realm already exists in Genesis 1. God is looking for objections from other divine creatures, giving man a role in this world, giving man power, making man in the image of the divine. What I think we have here in this text is an early text about God's divine counsel, where God queries and talks to other agents in the divine realm and gets their opinions, gets their input on things that he's planning to do. We see this also in 1 Kings 22, in which God's courtroom is described, and the angels, they brainstorm ideas for God to decide upon. We see it in Job, in the first chapter, where God is presiding over a courtroom, and the angels present before him as well. It's, it's pretty common throughout the Bible we see these scenes And I believe, I'm under the opinion, that this is just one more of those scenes in which God is querying other divine beings for ideas, for objections. And there are no objections to be had. The very next verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It moves from a plural, let us make man in our image, into God, he creating man in his image. So it moves from plural to singular. Let us make man in our image, and then God's the one creating. Let's remember that the word Elohim is being used in this passage, Elohim. It means God or God. Sometimes it could be used in the plural sense for a singular actor. But sometimes it also is used of angels. Elohim is the angel's. When Saul conjures up Samuel, if you guys remember that text, that Samuel is called an Elohim. So when we're using the word Elohim, we have to be careful to understand contextually what's it talking about. Is it talking about Yahweh, um, the God of the universe? Is it talking about some sort of spiritual being? Is it talking about one such being? Is it talking about multiple such beings? And the only way we really know is through context. We have to watch what the context is doing with that word 
to know how that word is being used. And English, for the most part, covers up these translator preferences, these translator guesses on the contextual meanings of these words. So just kind of watch in the Bible. Most Bibles have God. When, when the word Yahweh is used, it's in, in all caps. But when Elohim is used, it's uh, God, capital G, then lowercase O and D. And other Elohim references are mixed in with, you know, angels or so, something like that. And those are harder to spot. So that's why it's important to have some sort of Bible or software or something where you could actually see what Greek or Hebrew words are being used for the various words that we find throughout the Bible. Then you could sometimes see through what the translator is trying to force on the text and kind of see contextually how something else might actually make sense better than what the translator picked. We have to spend just a little bit of time talking about what it means to be made in the image of God. Michael Heiser in his lectures talks about the same thing that Richard Middleton talks about in his book, how being made in the image of God that's more of a role, that's more of a place, it's about power, it's about what people are designed to do. Let's read Middleton. Genesis 1, 26-28 combines all the foregoing motifs in the idea of humans as M-O-D, the image of God. These verses portray humans as created to rule over the animal kingdom, like Psalms 8, and subdue the earth, similar to tending the garden in Genesis 2 or bringing forth produce from the ground in Psalms 104. By its emphasis on agriculture and animal husbandry, which are the basis for human societal organization, Genesis 1 ultimately envisions the development of all aspects of culture, technology, and civilization. Humans are to accomplish this development as God's representatives, which is the upshot of being made in the image and likeness of God. An echo can be heard here of Psalms 8, 5, reference to humans made a little lower than God. The royal tasks of exercising power to transform the earthly environment into a complex social-cultural world that glorifies the Creator, the so-called cultural mandate, is thus a holy task, a sacred calling in which the human race, as God's image on earth, manifests something of the Creator's own lordship over the cosmos. From here, Middleton makes the exact same point that N.T. Wright makes elsewhere, that as idols are to false gods, humans were supposed to be towards God. The idea is that that entire earth is a temple, and in the temple there's usually an idol to the God, and the idol was called the image. You know, So man is in the temple, earth, for God, and Man is God's representative on earth. Middleton writes, In the ancient Near East, the world in which ancient Israel lived and in which the Old Testament was written, each major god had its own image or cult statue, usually set up in a recessed cella in a temple dedicated to that god. And the people in that ancient world thought that they could get in touch with each god through its image or official statue, with access mediated in practice by priests. Apart from these cult statues, or idols as the Bible calls them, it was the king who in the ancient Near East was thought to be the primary image of the gods on earth. We have a reference to both Egyptian pharaohs and Mesopotamian kings who are said to be 
the image or likeness of a god. The main point of this idea is that the king, like the cult statue in the temple, is the official mediator of the presence and will of gods on earth. Other gods, they had their own idols. Yahweh of the Bible, each person on earth, is the mediator between man and God themselves. Each person is that link to the divine. The Israelite religion was a very egalitarian religion. It was a very human-based religion in which mankind had inherent value. Let's go ahead and listen to secular scholar Christine Hayes on this issue. So the concept of the divine image in humans, uh, right? That's a, that's a powerful idea. That, that there is a divine image in humans, and that breaks with other ancient conceptions of the human. In Genesis 1, humans are not the menials of God. And in fact, Genesis expresses the antithesis of this, where in Enuma Elish, service was imposed upon the, God, on, on the humans so the gods were free. They didn't have to worry about anything. The humans would take care of, of, of gods. In, we have the reverse. It's almost like a polemical inversion in Genesis 1. The very first communication of God to the human that's created is concern for that creature's physical needs and welfare. He says in Genesis 1, verses 28 and 29, He blesses them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fertile and increase. Fill the earth and master it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the living things that creep on earth. In Genesis 2, verse 16, after the creation story there, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you are free to eat. His first thought is, What are you going to eat? I want you to be fruitful and multiply, and so on. So humans in Genesis are not presented as the helpless victims of blind forces of nature. They're not the menials and servants of capricious gods. They are creatures of majesty and dignity, and they are of importance to objects of concern for the God who has created them. God's first task towards man is a delegation of power. And God blessed them, and God said to him, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. God is delegating power. God is not a power monger trying to keep all power to himself and, and hoarding all this power like, like the Calvinist God. No, God wants interaction with man. God wants man to exercise volition. God wants man to be in his image. I once asked a Calvinist, I said, how exactly is man in the image of God? Remember, to the Calvinist, man doesn't have free will. Uh, man can't choose good. Man is totally depraved. Man is a puppet with no real volition. God is just this transcendent being eternally in a timeless void in which he can't change or be affected with emotion. There is no conceivable way in Calvinism how man is in the image of God. The Calvinist God, one of not responding, one of, of, of total unchanging knowledge of the universe. That's not the one of Genesis 1. That's not the God of Genesis 1 who's creating, evaluating, figuring out how things are working, doing things in time. Uh, by by units of days and then delegating power and and communing with people in creating mankind let us make man in our image this is a collaborative 
act. It's a collaborative idea. It's looking for some sort of interaction that multiple actors have their hands in this activity. This is the God of Genesis 1, a God that is personal, relational, cares about human beings, creates human beings with inherent value. This is not a God creating depraved creatures to whom he's just going to destroy them. He's just predestining them, all their actions, all their sins, to his glory. No, he's creating a good universe. The text says again and again, the earth was good. He saw what he created, and it was good. This is to be later contrasted with the narrative events in Genesis 6, in which all of mankind becomes bad, and God becomes sorry, God becomes grieved, and God regrets making man. Remember Genesis 1? Man starts out good. God's creation starts out good. Genesis 6, all flesh have corrupted themselves. The Genesis 1 narrative actually doesn't end in the first chapter of Genesis. Remember, chapter and verse designations were added centuries after the Bible was finalized, and it was as a reference tool. The actual end of the Genesis 1 narrative actually happens in Genesis 2. Genesis 2.1 reads, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So it's summarizing all the events in Genesis 1. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Genesis 2-4 starts a different story. These are the generations of heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God had made the earth and the heavens. And it goes to describe a different series of events which may or may not be compatible with the first series of events described in Genesis 1. But Genesis 2-4 starts a different story. Genesis 1 ends actually in Genesis 2-3, in which God is described as resting after these series of days, and it talks about the days and night cycle. It talks about him resting after this day and night cycle of creation over the seven days. Well, that concludes our study of Genesis 1. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the Facebook companion page, God is Open. Thank you for listening.